If you haven't heard that already, we are celebrating Mother's Day today, and we appreciate all moms. And uh, we have a lot of people I've seen kind of back. I saw Jeff and Aaron here. Where, where are you guys at? Who knows? Yeah, they're in the building somewhere, too. So Jeff and Aaron Walters, it's good to see them. And uh, just great to see people when they come back home sometimes to hang out with mom. We get to see them, too. So always a great time. I appreciate you being here. We're in a series called Viral, and uh, as I've been thinking through the next step, we're, we're looking at Acts 4, and just how, how the world is the same and how the world has changed in the last uh, 2,000 years since Christianity went viral. And I was thinking about in the context of being a parent or being a mom or a dad, and it just seems from my perspective, which is limited, then in the last few decades, it's a little harder now maybe to be a parent or to, or to properly parent your child maybe that it seems like than it has been maybe for the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And, and the reason is, the, the way I see it, is that it's because we live in a, a, an increasingly secular and pluralistic society, which we also have the remnants of postmodernism still clinging, which basically is saying there are no moral absolutes, no, um, no absolute truth claims that you could make. And, and because of that, just, it's a different feel. But what I want us to, to realize is Christianity was born in a pluralistic society. And so we can go back and see what was happening then, and we'll get the same feeling now. I mean, we live in a society today where uh, because of uh, postmodernism and this uh, pluralism, that, that you, it, it's, there's kind of an unwritten rule that you can't say that an, a, an, a religion is wrong, another religion is wrong. Just don't do that. And, and you can't say certain behaviors are, are not right or, or certain behaviors are wrong. And if you try to do one of those two things or, or both of them, then people will try to stick you in a category and call that hate speech because you're just you're, you're saying what, what you believe just to be true. It's not, you're not trashing people. You're just saying, hey, I believe this is right and this is wrong. Now that's increasingly being viewed with suspicion and people are turning against that. But, but when you get down to it, everybody is making truth claims. And so what I want us to do in this next chapter of Acts, as we go into Acts 4, is just notice how the, how the disciples, when the church first went viral, and how it's, we're in the same society, and there's the same type of objections, and I'd like us to work through that. We're going to start in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And a couple of first few verses will be repeat, and then we'll go on uh, to the rest of chapter 4. But here's, here's how it goes. Acts 4, verse 1. And let me set the context. Uh, remember, we're talking about viral. The church went viral after the resurrection. Jesus was crucified, buried. Three days later, rose again. That's Easter Sunday. We celebrate his resurrection. And then he proved he rose again by appearing to a bunch of people, the disciples, groups of people, even a group of people over 500. And he did that for over 40 days. And then he assembled his disciples and he ascended up into heaven. Before he did that, he charged them that to share this message to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the world, uttermost parts of the world. 
And so give them this charge. But then he said, wait for the Holy Spirit, the one that I promised to come. And so they go to Jerusalem and they wait. And then Pentecost happens. And this is just a little bit later, 10 days or so later, less, about a week later. The Holy Spirit shows up. They're meeting together in a room. The Holy Spirit comes in the form of something like fire where individual tongues of fire land on each one. It empowers them. And then they spill out from that room into the street. And all of a sudden they, they are empowered by the Holy Spirit to be able to speak other languages. And people hear them in their own native tongue. And now the reason why that's significant is that people are in Jerusalem from all different countries celebrating this uh, Not only the Passover, but now, 50 days later, celebrating Pentecost. And so they're there. They don't speak uh, the native tongue. But these disciples spill out, and they are speaking all their languages. And people realize something's going on here. That gets a crowd together. Peter uses that opportunity to preach his first public sermon. So that happens, and a bunch of people become believers. Thousands of them, 3,000. And then the church is born that way. Now later, we talked about this last Sunday, Peter and John go to the temple. They're still involved in the temple in that that's their audience. That's their, the people they're trying to reach. And they go to the temple and on the way there, they see this man that's lying at a gate. He's, he's, been, he's not been able to walk since birth. Never been able to walk. He's there. He's begging. There's not a lot of options back in the first century to get by. And so he's begging from God's people as they come into the temple that, and he's doing that. Peter and John see them, and then Peter says, hey, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have I'll give to you, and he heals the man, and the man can walk. They go into the temple together. This all happens at uh, prayer time or evening sacrifice, which is 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The sacrifice happens. The temple stuff happens. But in the meantime, all the word of this is spreading throughout the temple. By the time that's all over, there's a huge crowd again around Peter and John and this healed man who's sticking to them like glue. And everybody recognizes because he's been there for over 40 years. He's not been able to walk. So they all know a miracle's happened. So they're pressing around Peter. Peter again uses this opportunity to preach a message. And while he's preaching this message toward the end of it, he's arrested by the authorities. And as they're taking him away, another another. A big response happens where thousands of more people become believers. Even though they're arresting the preacher, people come to Christ. And so this is a situation, and now they're brought forward, and now that kind of brings us up. Acts chapter 4, beginning verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, and being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people And proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead, they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were were of high priestly descent. And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power and what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as as to how this man has been made well, Let it be known 
to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. Whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is, and then talking about Jesus, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So here, Peter and John use this opportunity of being arrested. They're meeting in front of this court, which was the same court that about eight weeks earlier had sentenced Jesus to death, basically the same people. And then Peter proclaims the message of Jesus. And it's very exclusive. And, and so what I want us to work through is there are objections to, to Christianity today in a pluralistic society, but Christianity was born in a pluralistic society with the same objections. For example, objection number one, claiming Jesus is the only way is way too exclusive. That's what people in our culture, hey, saying Jesus is the only way to heaven, that's way too exclusive. You can't do that, people say. And the exclusive message of Jesus that the disciples preached also brought them into conflict with the authorities. For example, the Jewish, the different Jewish sects, they didn't like that message. The, the Pharisees didn't. Here's the Sadducees and also the, the priestly line. They didn't like the message. They didn't like preaching that was talking about Jesus as the Messiah because what's Peter saying? You crucified him. You see, they saw the Messiah differently and they had misunderstood the Old Testament. That's what Peter is telling them and what Jesus had told them. You've misunderstood the Old Testament. You think that the Messiah is going to come to be a national leader and to help you become independent from Rome. But you've missed the point. When, when the Messiah was first introduced through Abraham, it was through Abraham all the nations, all the world would be blessed. You've missed the breadth of the Messiah. And, and so as, as they're coming to terms with that, they're realizing, hey, we, we've got an issue here. The, the very fact that they're at the temple, and that's where they're preaching, and there's this huge surrounding area called the Court of the Gentiles, which has become just a place to barter and exchange things for temple sacrifices. That's what Jesus had an issue with. That whole court of the Gentiles, what's the point? The point was that they had misunderstood God's role for the Jewish people was to proclaim God and the true Messiah to the whole world. But they weren't doing that. So they misunderstood the scriptures. They misunderstood their role. And they, they didn't like this new message. And the different sects, none of them liked this message of Christ. And by the way, Roman culture was also an officially pluralistic culture, a pluralistic society, meaning Rome was the world power and they would take over countries. And then rather than dealing with all these religions, they just said, hey, you keep your gods, you keep worshiping the way you worship, but you have to worship Caesar as God also. Pluralism. You have to add worshiping Caesar. And so Christians 
couldn't do that. And that's why they were in conflict with Roman authorities. Same thing that we see in Scripture. So this exclusive message brings them into conflict, not only with Jewish people, but with Rome. And they're saying it, it can't be this just this one way. But really, every system, including secular systems, make truth claims. Remember, the, the layman, for example, he, why was he at the gate? Because he was not allowed in the temple. Why? Because he had this physical problem. Wasn't allowed in. Really, he was a picture of all of us. None of us are morally qualified to come near God. Uh, it, that's what's happening. And, and a lot of times you have people, people and they're saying, well, hey, um, it's just it's too exclusive. And, and they say with kind of with arrogance, it, it's just weird to see how people balance this like, like a lot of times I'll hear in our culture, maybe, maybe it's a mom explaining to her child or a dad or a parent or just somebody talking to somebody, and, and they'll basically sum it up this way. They'll say, well, all good people go to heaven. And you hear this a lot at funerals and stuff. All good people go to heaven. All good people go to heaven no matter what they believe or no matter what their religion, all good people go to heaven. And they feel by saying that, that's not exclusive. But actually, that's exclusive. Who's being excluded? All the bad people. All the bad people, whether they have a religion or not a religion, they don't get... And then, who's judging good? Who, who, who's judging? You? Are, are you the judge of what's good? Because that's the next thing you have to figure out. How, how about people who lie? Who cheat? Because normally when people say good people, what they really mean is people basically good, good people like me. Good people like me, we're okay with God. Bad people, which is everybody less moral than me, dicey. They're in trouble. You know, watch out. But the problem is, who's good? So what if somebody lies and cheats and steals? Well, well that's bad. But, but you've done something. Well, if they do it a little bit. What about people who oppress people? Well, that's about what they just oppress people a little bit. Who's making the determination? It's all exclusive. And that's the charge. Then a lot of people, you know, we're realizing that Christianity is actually the most inclusive religion in that all people, even the bad people, can come to Christ. As a matter of fact, yesterday I was talking to a, a, a friend of mine, talking to him on the phone, and, and I was kind of going through the gospel with him. And then I made a statement that, I, that he took maybe as a little profound, because he asked me to repeat it, but I, I basically said, the deal is only bad people can become Christians. And he's like, what? And I said, only bad people can become Christians. If you think you're a really good person and you're okay with God, then you don't need Jesus' death. You, you don't need, that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is saying we, we are all messed up. We're all flawed. We all have issues. We all have hang-ups. We've all violated God's command. We've all come up short. And so we need help. And so we can't earn it. 
And so we have to understand our badness in order for us to ever really even become a true Christian. And that's where we say, I can't get to heaven, I don't deserve heaven, but Jesus is offering me the gift of heaven if I would simply respond to him in faith by trusting that his death on the cross, the only one who didn't deserve to be punished for sin because he had none, that he voluntarily died on the cross as punishment for my personal sin and your sin. And when we believe that, that's how, that's how we become a believer. That's what Christianity means. Think about this context. They're before the court, and it was kind of a, simil, uh, a semicircle. That's why they say he's in the center. And so they're peppering them with questions. It's awkward because it's John, Peter, and this guy they all recognize as being crippled from birth. He's not been able to walk, and he's standing there with them, so it's, it's odd. But they're still trying to silence them, even with the evidence. He, nobody's... Nobody's denying that this guy can walk and has never been able to walk. That's not the argument. But what does, what does Peter say? Hey, it's not like we did this. It's the name of Jesus. You know, Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you had crucified eight weeks ago. It's very accusatory. He just lays it out there. You guys, same court. And then he throws him out hope. He's saying, you guys did wrong. You were bad. And then he says, there's no other name by which men can be saved. There's no other way that we can become human beings, can become believers. Just Jesus. He accuses them, you crucified our Messiah, and there's no other way to be saved. It's only through this crucified Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he gives them the hope. All religions are exclusive and all secular systems and beliefs are also exclusive. All these systems are mutually exclusive, but Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity there is because all can come on the basis of Jesus. The second objection we see in a pluralistic society is that is people will charge, they'll say, claiming Jesus is the only way is arrogant. It's kind of like we've talked about this other thing before, where as a believer, if you say, well, I know, you know, based on what Scripture says, I know that I'm going to heaven. And you'll talk to people, some people who claim to be Christians, and they'll say, you know you're going to heaven? Oh, that's so arrogant. Of course, we understand that uh, no, I don't think you ever get what I'm saying. Yeah, I know I'm going to have, but it's not because I've done anything. It's not because I'm good. It's not because I'm better than anybody else. It's because I'm a jacked up person who came on my knees to Jesus. That's it. That's all I got. It's a free gift that he offered me. I just received it. It's not arrogant. But see, what people say about the whole system of Christianity is it's, it's not only is it too exclusive... It's arrogant to say Jesus is your... It's like you've picked your system and you've said your system is better than anybody else's system, whether secular or religious. You've elevated yourself. You, you've picked this. No, that's not what's happening here. The amazing thing is a lot of times people just 
a lot of times people who are making this charge, you're being arrogant by saying Christianity, they have a favorable view of Jesus. You'll say, well, what about Jesus? Well, he was a great guy. He was a great moral teacher. I'm not, I'm not criticizing Jesus. I'm just saying, you can't say he's the only way. Makes it, Jesus said he's the only way. The only Jesus we know, the Jesus that his life was told to us about the eyewitnesses in the first century that we have records of. He said he's the only way. It's just part of who he claims to be. People don't understand what Jesus said. Jesus said, before Abraham was, before Abraham existed, I am. It's a personal name of God. And that, that's why they tried to stone him when he said that in John 8. Or, or that's when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. He's saying, I'm the way. Or if you say, or, or right after that, no one comes to the Father, God, except through me. That's Jesus' own claim. It's not, that's not our claim. That's what Jesus said. This is the Jesus, the historical Jesus, who's been revealed to us through the pages of history. That Jesus, it's the only Jesus we have. He said. And, and so you have to realize that Jesus made claims that no other religious leader made. I mean, Buddha, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, these religious leaders never claimed to be the son of God. They never claimed that by their blood that we could be forgiven of our sins. So it boils down to either Jesus isn't the son of God, and then he's actually inferior to all these other If that was the case, he would be inferior to all the other religious leaders who weren't stupid enough to make that claim. Or Jesus is the Son of God, and what he's saying is exactly true, and he is on another level. He is above and supreme over every other religious leader in the world. You, you have to figure that out. Our culture misses the implication of who Jesus is. And that believing in Jesus is to believe his claims. But you'll talk to people, and they have this, well, it's arrogant to think there's only one way. And, and sometimes they'll use the illustration like the, the blind men and the elephant. You know, you have it's a, kind of an old story from India. But, you know, it's a blind men, are, are, you know, and they're asked to describe the elephant. But, but each person, sometimes there's three, sometimes there's six, whatever. But they're all feeling a different part of the elephant and say, this is how the elephant is. Tell me you're with me, because you've heard this story, right? Right. So one guy's grabbing a leg and saying, wow, the elephant's like a, a tree or a pillar. Another guy you know, is grabbing the tusk and saying, well, the elephant's like a spear. Or just the side, well, the elephant's like a wall. You know, or, the, or the trunk, like a big snake, you know, whatever. And, and then you know, they say, see, nobody has the whole truth. See, no religion has all the truth. Just some of the truth. Here's a problem with, with somebody using an analogy like that. The whole problem is, yes, yeah, somebody does have the whole truth. It's the person who can see the elephant or the person telling the story. They see the whole elephant. They see the truth, and they're just kind of nitpicking at the people who they're certain are, for some reason they're limited, can't see the whole truth. Or, or here, Here's another problem with that. If you're comparing this to Christianity... And Jesus specifically, the difference is, when you compare it, 
the elephant speaks the language of men and says, I'm an elephant. That's what Jesus did. He came and told us in plain language, in our language, common language, I'm the Son of God. I'm the only way. No one can come to the Father but through me. That's what he's saying. That's the whole point. It's not arrogant to say Jesus is supreme. It's just the simple implication of who Jesus claims to be. He is not one among many. Jesus is not that. Sometimes, if the objection isn't, wow, Christianity, it's, it's way too exclusive. Or it's just arrogant to say there's only one way. It's exclusive to say there's only one way. Too exclusive. Some people, they'll get above all that and they'll just kind of say, well, it's religion. Religion is, is personal. And when they're saying that religion, it's personal, they're, they're making a statement there and they're just saying, you can't, it doesn't really matter. You cannot talk to other people about this because they have their own subjective truth. It's a personal preference. It's a belief. Prior to this last week, my personal belief was that I could change a mower blade without injuring myself. <laughs> and then Tuesday night, reality hit. And I'm cranking, I'm under my mower, three blades, and I'm cranking on one, and you got to hold the blade, and you got to crank, and it was, you know, hard, and I'm cranking, cranking, cranking. By the way, my broken, twisted mower blade is way sharper than the new one I'm putting on. I don't know why that is. It's just, and it finally came and eight stitches in my hand. Wow, eight stitches. <laughs> Got a pretty good response for eight stitches. Yeah, so eight stitches, you know, boom. I thought I could do it. My personal preference was that I could do it. My previously held belief was that I could have done this before. No dice. Not reality. Here, here's what I want you to see. There's a lot of influential people in our culture, and we see them all the time through the media. And I don't know if you... I see this all the time, so correct me if I'm wrong, or, or just share with me if, if you get where I'm coming from here. What happens is a lot of these people in the media, it's like they have a disdain for evangelical Christianity. But they're not against religion. As a matter of fact, they'll kind of talk like, oh, religion, yeah, it's a good thing, and they'll do a little story here and a little story there, and it'll just be kind of religion in a soupy kind of a way is, can be a good thing for some people. But evangelical Christianity, Bible belief, that's not really good. Too exclusive, too arrogant, you know, all those, those reasons, you know. And it's just kind of a, an attack on evangelical Bible Christianity, but a belief that religion in general is sort of okay. And here's what's happening there. There's this assumption that all religions subjectively help different types of people. But no religion is objectively true. This, this is where they're coming from. 
All religions, religion in general, different religions, they subjectively help people. You know, subjective truth. That's what we have in postmodernism, which means it's true if it's true for you. It's true if you think it. But that's not truth. That's an opinion. But they would say, yeah, all religions, they subjectively can help people personally. But no religion is really universally or objectively true. And so that's the problem they have with, they should have with every religion, because every religion is mutually exclusive, plus every religion and secular thought is all mutually exclusive. But they don't see it that way. They just see it this way. And then that shapes our popular kind of cultural thinking into saying, okay, these religions are equally helpful to people personally, but none are objectively true. And so when it comes to things like, you know, science and stuff like that, we put that into the objective truth category. But then when it comes to religion and stuff like that, we stick that. We're, we're not seeing which fits into the objective category. We're just taking all that and shoving that over into a subjective truth category, which means no truth at all. You can't really know. We'll just stick that over there. And so you can't ever make a truth claim. That's completely foreign to Christianity. Christianity is saying, because of Jesus Christ and what happened, especially at the resurrection, it is objectively true. That's what they don't want to hear. But if do you think that way? You know, there's probably people here right with us, and you're thinking, and I'm not attacking you, I'm just, I want you to think about something. And you're thinking, yeah, that's kind of how I think, that you can't really say one religion is true and another's not true, because they're all subjective. And so you're kind of thinking that all religions are equally valid, and no one can really say or should say that, that they have the truth, or that Jesus is the only way. If you think like that, I want to push back a little bit. I want to challenge you that thinking that way, you are logically inconsistent and thinking that way is being culturally narrow. Logically, how is that logically inconsistent? Okay, let's look at it. Can all religions be equally valid? Not, not really, unless... Can all religions be equally valid? Well, they can be equally valid if there is no God, because then they'll be equally wrong. So if there's no God at all, all religions equally valid, sure. Or maybe, if you want to really push on that, they could be equally valid if there was a God, but he didn't care anything about how anybody believed about anything. So when you make that statement... You're, you're also making a truth claim about God. You're saying either God doesn't exist or God totally doesn't care if he does exist. But that's an exclusive truth claim that you're making when you say that. It's logically inconsistent. When we Bible-believing Christians tell people what we have learned about God through the Bible and through Jesus... And, and what we're doing is we're teaching people a view of God, how we, how we believe he revealed himself to us. 
But when you say to people, all religions are equally valid, you're teaching a view about God that either doesn't exist or doesn't care. You see, we're both teaching a view of God. We're admitting it. We're being honest about it. You're teaching a view about God, and you're not admitting it. You're not being honest about that. You're, you're cloaking that. It's logically inconsistent. We're both teaching a view. How about culturally narrow? You know, people will say religion belongs in the subjective cap. Where does that come from? That basically comes from Western culture. So to say religion and spiritual truth claims belong in the subjective category, not the objective category, that's culturally narrow. But if you want to get beyond that, when you're saying no religion has the whole truth, kind of like the elephant thing, no religion has the whole truth, well, how do you know that? In order to know that, wouldn't you have to have some access to some higher level of truth to even be able to know that? How are you making that judgment? Because really, who, who has that truth? Well, you must have some, some way of knowing that. Or it's really a claim that you have access to truth that other people don't have access to. Christians do not claim that we have the whole truth. Only God has all truth. We claim that God has revealed the most important truths to us through the Bible and through Jesus. And then we would say this. Is there anyone in all of human history that has a more credible claim to know God than Jesus Christ? Because when you're saying we can't know and they're all the same and you can't make... You're basically saying you know more about God than Jesus knows about God. I think we can dispute that. Is there any more, anybody more credible in history to know about God? Is there anybody or any book that has showed a greater insight into the human heart and our deepest spiritual needs than Jesus Christ in the Bible? And don't take my word for it. Read it and see for yourself. And make your own judgment. But what we discover in the end is that everybody has exclusive truth claims. Secularists just don't admit it. And one last thing. If you're kind of clinging to the postmodern notion that there's really no universal truth, that's going to disappoint you. And here's why. If there's no universal truth, if that's, if, if that's what you're operating from, then you can't ever make a moral judgment. And because of that, you can never fight oppression. You could never stand up um, against injustice. You can never call out oppression against women or anybody else. Because there's no absolute truth. 
You have no basis for doing that. If there is no God, you could have moral feelings, but nobody would have moral obligations. You can think it, but it's not true. And I think you'll discover that the world needs moral absolutes without oppression. The world needs moral absolutes without oppression. And that's exactly what Christianity is. Jesus came to pay our penalty. Jesus came to die for us. It's a, Christianity is a morality based on following the God who died for us and the one who calls us to serve other people. Morality without oppression. So moms and dads, if you're a Christian, it's our task before God to teach our children truth, that there is truth, and then the truth is revealed to us by God. It's our job to teach our kids to know God and to love him. And if you're here, because maybe you came to, to be with mom, first of all, thanks for being at Grace. We'd love to have you back. And I don't want you to leave without knowing this. There's a creator God of the universe who created you and knows you, knows everything about you. All your flaws, all your imperfect motivations, all your skeletons, all your junk. And he loves you still. And he wants a relationship with you. But it's a relationship based on honesty. So you don't come to God pretending that you don't come to a holy, perfect God pretending that you're okay or that you're good enough. God wants us to have a relationship with honesty where we look at his standards and realize where we've, we're messed up. We're sinners. We're rebels. And it's when we understand that that we can truly have a relationship with him. Because until we've reached that point, there's no reason for Jesus to come and die for us. And he has. God doesn't love you just with words. He loves you with costly action that he would allow his one and only son to die on the cross, give his life, to pay your individual penalty for sin and my individual penalty for sin so that we could have a relationship with God forever. And so when you hear this message... You can reject it or you can embrace it or you can ignore it, which is just rejecting it for now. But just know you're, you're doing one of those three things because God's inviting you and he wants you to come and have a relationship with him based on faith. And that's simply believing that Jesus Christ is the son of God and trusting in the fact that his death on the cross paid for your individual sins, just like it did mine. Let's stand together for prayer. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for your goodness and your love.
for us, and we thank you for moms and uh, your idea and how they love us so selfishly, selflessly, and unconditionally when, when we can't even love them back. And they teach us how to love. God, we thank you for that. Most of us have experienced that. And Father, we thank you for everybody who's here who, who might be celebrating moms today. And maybe they're just here for the first time or maybe they're out of the habit. Lord, we pray that every person here would feel your love for them. And maybe feel a tug on your heart as you draw them to yourself. And if that's happening, Lord, we pray that they'd come back and find out more about you. God, thanks for loving us, even though we don't deserve it. And making a way for us to have a relationship with you, even though we don't deserve it. God, thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have any questions, uh, you can stop by room one, ask any questions, or if you want some literature to read a little bit more about having a relationship, we can just hand that to you if you don't have time. Thanks. You're dismissed.